0: Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Thanks be to Christ. Be
1: well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back with you. I hope that you were richly uh, filled last week when when my uh, longtime friend and also theological mentor and teacher, Dan Doriani, uh, Brought the scripture to us from James. Uh, we are right in the middle of a series on James. We're calling it the Ethics of Grace, and the title of today's sermon is "Vital Signs: How to Know That Your Faith Is Real." Uh, and uh, some are confused by James, especially this passage, uh, and particularly those who come from the Reformation tradition of. Calvin and Luther and, and, and that whole tribe, which, which we would, uh, at Christ Prez, claim to, to come from that same tradition, uh, James can, at first blush, be a bit confusing, especially when put right up next to the Apostle Paul, who says that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, uh, and it's completely a gift from start to finish. And in comes James and says, show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And, you know, Paul, on the one hand, uh, goes out of his way to say Abraham was justified by faith. And James seems with equal energy to go, uh, you know, to, 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 to go in the other direction, at least it appears, in saying that Abraham was justified by his works, and so was Rahab. Even Martin Luther, the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, called James an epistle of straw. Luther actually had suspicions as to whether or not James belonged in the Bible. But then, like many Bible scholars over the years more deeply studied James, more deeply studied Paul, and later on in his life, Luther would say, we are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. And what Luther discovered is what many have discovered over the centuries through careful study of the Scripture, is that Paul and James are 100% unified. In their, in their understanding and in their teaching of the nature of how God saves a person and brings them into saving relationship with himself. They're both speaking and teaching the same substance but with different emphases, in the same way that uh, different converts to Christianity would, would describe the same Jesus, if you were a prostitute or a poor person who had converted to Christianity, you would describe Jesus, first and foremost, as somebody who is incredibly kind-hearted and tender. If you were a Pharisee or a scribe who had, who had converted to Christianity from your legalism and your shaming posture, you might actually first think of Jesus as somebody who's very fierce and confrontational. As his way to, to, to lead people in the kingdom. See, they're both, the Pharisees and the prostitutes and the poor who'd been converted to Christianity are both describing the same Jesus, just from a different perspective, in the same way, in the same way that Paul and James are em- emphasizing different aspects of the same salvation, You know, James emphasizes uh, in in his letter just a little bit later on, uh, I'm sorry, a little bit earlier in chapter 2, verse 5, has not God chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God? He's saying this, the only ones who get in are the ones who come to God with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I, I cling. And then Paul, who's known for emphasizing salvation by grace through faith, also said, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for you to do. And Paul said, if anyone is a new, or is in Christ, that person is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. Paul would even go so far as to say in the grace letter, Galatians, the only thing that counts is faith that expresses itself through love. So, Paul and James are on the same page, just a little bit of a, a theological lesson, theological clarification there. Whereas, Paul emphasizes faith alone as the means of salvation, James emphasizes works as the proof that salvation by grace through faith is actually there. So, four headings today. i give you a bonus point. Demonic faith saving faith, scandalous love, and a pastor's humility. So, let's start with demonic faith. The writer Garrison Keillor famously said once that sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. You could add to that, or actually James has added to that, believing every single word of the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than being in a garage makes you a car. Did the pastor just say that? The pastor just said that. Verse 19, to Jewish converts to Christianity, James says, you believe that God is one. You do well to believe that. He's not dismissing that. What he's doing is he's he's hearkening back to uh, the Shema. Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. That was their statement of orthodoxy back then, like the Apostles' Creed is our statement of orthodoxy in the Nicene Creed. And what James would do is he would continue in verse nineteen to say, "Even the demons believe that God is one; even the devils believe God is one." So in John chapter eight, James—I'm sorry—Jesus gets into a, a debate with religious leaders, moralists, particularly the, the, the types of people that, that James might be challenging here in this text. The religious leaders, mainly scribes and Pharisees, say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works that Abraham did, and you don't. And then the leader said, well, God is our father. And Jesus says, the devil is your father. So really James the half brother of Jesus is echoing Jesus himself who pushed back constantly on the Pharisees to say look your expression of christianity or whatever it is you want to call it it's cultural christianity but it's not biblical christianity And one of the fundamental ways that your cultural christianity which is not christian uh, uh, biblical christianity is discerned is your usness Jesus' arms are this wide. Yours are this wide. And so whatever it is, this little thing that you're calling faith is not really faith except that it's the faith of devils. Jesus would go on to say in John 8, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, who are the ones who abide in his words. Those who love God with all their heart and those who... Love their neighbor as themselves. So Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon, and and I, as I was studying this this past week, I was wondering what if we put this sermon title on our on our marquee outside. Jonathan Edwards' sermon was was this was the title: True Grace, Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. And Jonathan Edwards said there there are two aspects of belief that 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 the devils actually share with those. Who truly believe in Jesus? The first is sound doctrine. I've already kind of beat that horse a little bit. But James, what he's saying here, when he says even the devils believe, even the demons believe, he's saying that the demons, that Satan himself, the paragon of evil himself, is more accurate in his knowledge of the Bible. And, 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 and deeper in his belief in everything that the Bible says than a minister or a missionary. Sound doctrine, that alone puts you with the devils. The other thing that the devils have, that true believers have also, is respect for the power of God. Notice where James says, the demons believe and they shudder. They're afraid of God because they know where their trajectory is taking them because they believe everything God said, but they're not surrendered to Him. And the the, the single validating virtue that says you are an authentic believer in Jesus is woefully lacking in the demons just as it was lacking in the Pharisees and scribes, whose father was not Abraham or God but the devil himself. And that single validating virtue is love. Paul emphasized this too. Paul, the champion of salvation by grace through faith alone and Christ alone. Paul said, if you have faith that can move mountains, but you don't have love, that you don't have these good works which God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in them, then you have nothing. You are nothing. You got nothing the sons of the devil, their culture is to accuse, to punish, to judge, to shame, and to put borders around their hearts. And precisely because they believe the the Bible, they're terrified of God because they know, because the Bible tells them, that one day they will taste their own medicine of accusation and punishing and judging and shaming. Everlasting absence of love is the destiny of demons, and it's the destiny of those who identify their Christianity strictly and solely with sound doctrine and respect for the power of God. If that's all you've got, you're a devil. Saving faith. What is saving faith? Well, Edwards adds adds a number three and a number four to the list. The love that the devils and the Pharisees and the scribes lack is the chief virtue that rounds out the four attributes of somebody who has actual faith that God is behind. One is love for God, and Abraham is is put right here as a picture of that because, as Jesus said, it's the one who loves me that will obey my commandments. Love in the heart means that my wish will become your command and my commands will not feel burdensome to you because you love me. And you understand that my motives towards you are good. You understand that my laws and my commands are for your flourishing, not to constrict you but to protect you and and to give you wings to fly and, and legs with which to run. So he points to Abraham who, of course, in obedience to the voice of god took his one and only son whom he loved toward the top of a dark ominous mountain with a knife and wood and flint and god said i'm not going to tell you the whole story about what's what's about to happen but what i want you to do is trust me enough to be willing to let go of and even sacrifice your own son if that's what i asked you to do And so, in humble obedience and also trusting God, interpreting his circumstances and the meaning of the calling that God had just placed on his life in light of what he already knows about the character of God, so much so that he looks at Isaac as they're walking up the dark, ominous mountain, and he says to Isaac, God is going to provide us with a way out of this. I know God better than to think that God wouldn't provide a way out for us because God loves us. And so let's keep walking. And, 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 and to the last moment, Abraham is obeying the voice of God because he trusts in the love of God. And he doesn't hear any further voice from God. And so he starts to follow through and then God says, stop, as you knew it would be. I'm telling you now, don't touch the boy. This was all a test, just like all suffering, all angst, is a test of love. And Abraham, you have demonstrated, this is what it says in Genesis, you have demonstrated, and now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son, because you obeyed. Now, how incredibly painful is that? I see myself running the other way, there's no way that, that that I'm ever going to have that. I can't ever fathom having that kind of faith, letting go of, of my own children. But the thing is, God never fathomed that for Abraham either. He never fathomed it for him. What God was after was not Abraham's Boy, what God was after was a hierarchy of love in Abraham's heart so that Abraham would not be a dysfunctional father, either a needy father or an abusive father with respect to his son, because the love for God was, was, was above the love for the son, which actually made him a better father than, than he would be if the, the hierarchy had been reversed. This is what obedience is. When, when, when you love somebody, submitting to their desires, submitting to their wishes, submitting to their Myers-Briggs profile or their Enneagram number and their love languages around those things is second nature if you really love somebody, if you're fond of them. You know, many of you have been married, many of you desire to be married Uh, one day, and I I was speaking at a conference this past week, and and one of the statements I made that that got some laughter, I didn't think it would, doesn't mean you're obligated to laugh. Um, But what I said is is that for many of us, marriage is actually the first cross-cultural relationship that we will ever enter, because male and female are very different biologically and in in, in many other ways. So, my mother understood this as she grew up in a testosterone-filled home. Even the dog was a boy. And my mother, who grew up, uh, you, know, you know, very much, uh, you know, in, in the world of, of girls with a bunch of sisters all of a sudden, was mother to a bunch of boys, married to a dude, and, and had a dude for a dog. And, and she cultivated an interest in things that we were interested in, Kick the can, sports, body odor, all these sorts of things we're interested in, steak. um, And and so I grow up, and I get married to a girl, and then have two girls, and now even our dog is a girl, and so I live in an ocean of estrogen. And because I love my family, I have submitted to their desire that I enter into the story of Lorelai and Rory, the Gilmore Girls, with them and I'm not turning in my man card for that. Uh, I've actually grown to enjoy Gilmore Girls so much because of the culture of femininity in my home has rubbed off on me so much and and grown me up a little bit that I've actually watched episodes by myself. (laughs) Love for God, His wish, becomes our command. And even the costly stuff that, that feel like the guts are being teared out of us, we have a record, uh, namely a Savior, another son on a dark, ominous mountain who voluntarily went under his father's knife. It's not as if God is, is distance from the very worst things that we will ever have to go through. You know, I, I feel like God gave us the cross of Jesus on the one hand for ga- vicarious reasons so that there would be a penalty paid for our sin and rebellion, but also for solidarity reasons to remind us I am with you in this. I'm for you in this. Whatever dark valley, whatever dark, ominous mountain you're climbing. But love for God, it says in the Scriptures, always develops into love for people. It's the second greatest command that flows right out of the first, and it's just like it because you can't bless God with your mouth and then curse people made in His image out of that same mouth. And so after Jesus gives his teaching on the first and greatest commandment and on neighbor love, somebody says, Lord, who is my neighbor? And Jesus uses to a Jewish audience an example of a Samaritan who's the protagonist of the story who let this sink in for a moment. Given the cultural moment we're in right now, I will offend some some people with this. This is my intent. Not to drive you away, but to get you to think. Not according to your cultural Christianity, but according to your biblical Christianity. Jesus was needling people by by making a, a Samaritan and not a Jew the hero of that story. Because Samaritans were seen by the Jews as violent foreigners with the wrong religion. And Jesus says, guess what? Guess who your neighbor is? Guess who you cannot close the borders of your heart to? The people that you've been closing the borders of your heart to. I hope we're still friends. That was not a political statement. That was a distinguishing between cultural Christianity, privileged Christianity that has never missed a meal and that has never been exiled from one's home, and biblical Christianity that says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you let me into your home. When did we do this, Lord? Whatever you did to one of the least of these in these same scenarios, you did for me. Hard to get away from that. Faith without works is dead. It's just talk, cheap talk. Whoever claims to live in Him, scandalous love, 1 John 2.6, whoever claims to live in Jesus must and will, as a byproduct of living in Him, walk as Jesus did. Stunning That James, the Jewish half-brother of Jesus Christ, includes Abraham and Rahab in the family of God as models of faith. Yes, Abraham, the bad husband who threw his own wife under the bus twice and, and, and was a passive abuser even by putting her in the hands of abusers to protect himself. And God works in him, and he becomes the father of those who have true faith. And Rahab the prostitute, the prostitute, the non-Jewish, Canaanite, Gentile, other who makes it into the Hebrews 11 Faith Hall of Fame along with Abraham, who ends up becoming the great-great-grandmother of King David and who makes it right into the middle, right into the center of Jesus Christ's family tree. God is pushing on us, folks. He's pressing against our cultural Christianity, and He's telling us, get biblical "'Broaden your embrace as far as mine goes.'" Now, that also includes narrowing. The inclusion in the family to to the point where Jesus narrows it. But but it's a twist of fate because the religious are out in Jesus' world, and the pimps and prostitutes are in, entering the kingdom faster than the people who've been reading the Bible every day of their lives and who've cultivated a a fear of God and a respect for God. This is what made Jesus and his followers so scandalous, a soft spot for prostitutes. Every time he faces somebody, encounters somebody with a sexually questionable past or present, Jesus responds with tenderness and patience, never shame never scolding except toward those who are scolding the person who's sexually broken. In chapter 7 of Luke, a Pharisee named Simon throws a dinner party, and, 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 and in comes a prostitute who who uses her lips, her perfume, and her hair, all the tools of her trade to express love to Jesus in the only way that she knows how. And and, and the Pharisees and scribes, the religious people, the cultural Christians, say if he knew what kind of woman this was, that she is not a person, she's a thing, that she's not a human being, she's an animal, that she's not a she, she's an it. If he only knew this, then he would be a prophet but he's just discredited himself. And, and Jesus turns to them and says, you've just discredited yourself. You don't recognize that this woman right here just put on a clinic for you, showed you what love for God and true worship really is. But you're too blind to see it. You're too stuck in your own arrogance. You're too, too stuck in your own cultural Christianity. You're too stuck in the, the, the rigid borders that you've put around your own hearts. Faith without works is dead. You know, this haunting response that Jesus gives to Southern politeness. God bless you. Go your way. Praying for you. Go your way. Reminds me of the Keith Green song. Haunts me still, which is why I've chosen not to listen to it for about 15 years. But I still hear the lyrics whenever I read about the sheep and the goats where he says that there are those in the name of Christ who will say to those in need, God bless you, be at peace, and all heaven just weeps because Jesus came to your door and you left him out on the streets. Third person James includes is the man who comes in poorly clothed and he is dismissed with southern politeness. This happened to me in Kansas City, where Russ Ramsey was also a pastor with me uh, who led us this morning through the liturgy. In one worship service walks a man named Bill. Bill is coming off of a heroin addiction, I found out later. He has scars and streaks on his arms. He reeks of body odor and of nicotine. And a guy comes behind me right in the middle of the singing, taps me on the shoulder. I'll call him the church guy. And the church guy says, do you see that man over there? He stood next to me and all I can smell is body odor and nicotine, maybe even a little bit of liquor, pastor. He is a distraction to my worship. Should I talk to him or should you? And I said, I'll get this one. <laughs> yeah, you just, yeah, don't worry about it. I got this covered. And, and, and James two three came into my mind. If If somebody in dirty clothes comes into your midst, put the rich people on the floor and give him the seat of honor. He's coming off a heroin addiction. So, I reached out in the middle of that service to another man who has a bit of Abraham in the bad husband sense and a little bit of Rahab in the you-know-what sense in his history, and now he's become one of the best elders that I've ever worked alongside in the church. And and I go up to him, and he says, I know, I got this. And so, I'm like, okay. And so, he approaches Bill and asks two questions. What's your name? What's your story? And that begins a friendship, which begins a trajectory toward healing and recovery And you think, well, what about the nicotine? You know, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, right? And so you just let the guy off the hook. And here's what I think. If you traded in a heroin addiction for a nicotine addiction, you've upgraded. You're on a good trajectory. And oftentimes, bully churches and bully ministries have no respect for process, have no respect for where somebody is headed as a validating aspect of their faith. You got to get from here to here immediately, or you're out, or you're suspect, or you're shamed, or you're disciplined. And I'm not at all saying that there's not a place for for good, healthy pushback in church discipline. God's given that as a gift to restore, never to shame, always to restore. In walks the woman that he's with, with their. Two boys on the same Sunday. She is also in rehab, recovering from heroin with streaks on her arm and scars. She drops the boys off in the nursery, comes back after the service. The nursery director says, I'm so sorry. Hey, no skin off our backs, but just thought you would want to know as the parent, your kids started some fights. Some other kids have bloody nose because of it. Uh, and, and, and some of the toys are broken. Look, we got this. No worries. And she screams, Anne does, at the top of her lungs, shoot, except replace two vowels with one. And you get the word that she said in front of all of the children and all the parents around them, and a lot of first-time visitors. And she walks out of the door the walk of shame. The, I'm never coming back, all I do is screw up, that's all I ever do, and I just did it again, I, I'm probably never going to change, I'm, I'm out of here. And somebody in the nursery had the wherewithal to, to seek out a staff member to see if they'd signed the, the little sheet, the black book. This is part of why we have this, by the way. You never know what's going to happen with that little black book, okay? And, and, and they had put their address in there, and so the, the, the person in the nursery uh, decided that they were going to write a note to Anne to tell her that her saying the shoot word was the most refreshing church experience she's ever had in all of her life. <laughs> never have I seen such honesty in church, thank you for showing me what it means to be authentic, because sometimes we church people can put on this polished exterior and hold our stress right in there, and what you did was you reminded me that I can go bold and honest right to God with every aspect of my brokenness and woundedness, and God can handle it, and God can work with it and in it, and He will. So, in comes Anne the next week, not walking the walk of shame, but with a swag, right? And this is the beginning of a beautiful, messy story of transformation in these people's lives. They fell in love with Jesus, not in spite of the church, but because of the church. Because of the kind of hospitable culture that, by the way, is here. This is more of a keep it up rather than a change your ways kind of application here. Keep it up. So a few weeks later... I get a phone call from Bill. He said, We just came into a huge inheritance. You ever read Madeline Levine's book, The Price of Privilege? It's about how kids of privilege are most susceptible to drug addiction and to suicide and to anxiety and depression. And so Bill was a byproduct of the price of privilege, he was the price. And so his parents die, and he, he inherits millions of dollars. And, and, and they call, and he said, you know what? We've never given anything to anybody in our lifetime, and we feel like, you know, if this church has been so meaningful to us. We, we, we want to give back. And, uh, you know, I'm still kind of in church planting mode, and so I'm thinking, all right, uh, big inheritance, want to give something. All right. Uh, I like bringing those two things together. They gave me a ch- check for $50, 50 bucks. And I know that that was not technically correct as a gift according to biblical proportions because they invited me to the house that they bought with the the inheritance. And it was a very large house, McMansion, as they say. But the trajectory made that $50 the biggest gift that I've ever seen the biggest gift that I've ever witnessed, a bigger gift than I've ever given, two people are traveling to the promised land that is Nashville. One of them starts 130 miles away in Chattanooga. The other one starts 1,700 miles away in San Francisco. Two days later, the one in Chattanooga has not budged, still 130 miles away. The one from San Francisco, 260 miles away, twice as far away. To the naked eye, this person looks closer to the promised land, than this person. But this person has traveled at warp speed. This person has not moved an inch. Which is why Jesus said to these people over here, the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven faster than you. You never know what's going on beneath the hood of somebody's story. One more thing. I left church that day very cynical about church guy. The problem with the world is church guy. If only church guy would just disappear from the grid, then we could have church. And then I recognized in that very moment I was becoming the church guy, the grace Pharisee, the unloving Pharisee toward unloving Pharisees. Be kind, says this famous person named Anonymous. Be kind, because everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And so lastly, and very, very quickly, what we get from James is a pastor's humility. That's always the source of compassion is that you've been brought low yourself. You know what it's like to be low, and so you can open your arms of friendship to bad husbands like Abraham, to hookers like Rahab and to the poor guy with nicotine stains and scars and streaks on his arm. You feel like you're on a level playing field and, and, and this was the case with James. You remember? Remember James who, who joined the rest of Jesus' nuclear family in being publicly embarrassed by Jesus so much so that they, they thought he was crazy and they said it. But now... Clearly, James has come around. God had demonstrated great patience to James, and he's speaking out of grace about the essential outplaying of grace, and that is God's wish becoming our command for His glory and for our joy. In James, we see a pastor who does not Show pity to Abraham and Rahab and the poor person who comes in, but solidarity with the weak and the lowly. The last thing the world needs is more religious posers masquerading as ministers. And James recognizes this. What is good news for junkies and cussing moms and sexually broken people And judgy church, guys, is the same good news for pastors, youth workers, worship leaders, and apostles. Why? Because God the Father took His one and only Son, whom He loved, up an ominous mountain and did not spare Him of the sacrifice did not provide another lamb of scapegoat, but made him the lamb, the scapegoat, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God turns his back, God the Father does, on the son that he loves so that he can forever turn his face toward you and toward me. That is the meaning of this table. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you taste it? I want to invite pastors and elders and servers up and the children in as well. This is the Lord's Supper. Everyone is invited who has been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into the church of Jesus Christ and whose desire and deepest intent is to renounce sin and follow Jesus, albeit imperfectly. That's the desire and that's the intent If this does not describe you, there's still plenty of ways that you can participate, which will be demonstrated to us up on the screen. And so with those things being said, can we all stand together and confess sacred truths together from the Heidelberg Catechism?